0: Dramatic Health Production. Forget genius. In many ways, the significant advances in modern medicine can be viewed as little more than the product of a happy combination of dumb luck and coincidence. As you're about to hear, some of healthcare's most significant milestones were the result of fortuitous accidents followed by scientific rigor. But serendipity and science alone don't improve health and healthcare. It took curious, creative, and persistent individuals to bring these accidental discoveries from the lab bench to the patient bedside. These are their stories. This is Game Changers in Medicine. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Ruben Pillay. Professor of Medicine and Professor of Business at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I'm also a medical futurist, and by that I mean that I look at how hardware, software, communication, and biomedical technology converge to improve patient care. And while it may seem odd for one focused on the frontier of medicine to host a podcast exploring medical innovations from the past, I can tell you, that there's much to be learned from the scientists and clinicians who preceded us. Today's episode is about the discovery of x-rays. To say that this discovery revolutionized medicine is an understatement of the highest order. Imagine, suddenly doctors having the ability to peek inside a patient's body without having to cut into it. Talk about a game changer in medicine. The discovery launched an entire field of imaging that would evolve to improve diagnosis and treatment of everything from broken bones to heart disease and breast cancer. Today, x-rays are the most common diagnostic imaging technique, with nearly 400 million medical imaging tests performed worldwide each year. And the impact of x-rays extends well beyond medicine. X-ray technology is instrumental in keeping airports secure, authenticating art, and unearthing defects in building materials, to name just a few examples. And to think that it all started more than a century ago when a middle-aged German physicist experimenting in his lab noticed a strange glimmer of light and set out to determine its nature.
1: I think it's amazing to think about how this discovery that was done 125 years ago has become such a mainstay of our medical practices. You think you broke your arm, you go to the doctor, they say, okay, let's do an x-ray. It is not even a question of how this is done, or what it means, or what it can do. If you think about it, such an amazing thing to be able to use invisible light to see inside you.
0: We're happy to have Kathy Joseph here to tell us about the discovery of X rays. Kathy is a former university physics and math professor. More recently, she's the creator of the popular YouTube channel, Kathy Loves Physics and History. Kathy, would you share with us, please,
1: the Cliff's Notes versions of what X rays are? <laughs> okay, I will give it my best shot. So X-rays are a type of invisible light. X-rays happen when fast-moving electrons hit a metal object. The heavier the metal object is, the more X-rays you get. That seems pretty straightforward,
0: though it does beg the question of how scientists got electrons to hit a metal object
1: in the first place. I think you need to take a step back and talk about a guy named Heinrich Hertz. If Hertz sounds familiar, That's because he discovered radio waves first, and that's why radio is measured in megahertz and kilohertz. Anyway, Hertz was studying this thing called the cathode ray tube, and he accidentally discovered the cathode rays could go through thin pieces of metal. He asked his assistant, Philip Leonard, to make a tube which was split by a thin piece of metal, like a metal window, and this was called a Leonard tube. The Leonard tube came to be known more commonly as the cathode ray
0: tube. Even though we later learned that cathode rays were actually electrons, the name cathode ray tube stuck. You can find a detailed picture of this tube in the show notes on gamechangersinmedicine.com. For now, let me offer a quick visual. Imagine a cylindrical glass tube about as long as a football. The air has been pumped out of the tube to create a vacuum. Inside the tube is a metal plate. There's a wire electrode inserted into one end of the tube and an aluminium foil-covered window on the other end. That window is known as the Leonard window. So I'm no physicist, but here's my understanding of how this Leonard tube works. When an electrical charge is introduced, the tube essentially acts like a gun generating a beam of cathode rays, or electrons, that shoot through the tube and glow when they hit the Leonard window. Leonard observed that the glow of the rays extended outside the tube. Thanks to this design, and that window specifically, physicists could study cathode rays in a way that hadn't been possible before. Looking at
1: the rays that glowed just outside the vacuum tube, this was key and Leonard did something crazy. He put the window to the outside air, and then he studied outside in the room. And this was the first time in order to study it outside the room, he covered the outside of the tube with very thick cardboard. And so this device was perfectly suited to discover the X-ray. Before this, they're always looking inside the tube. This is the first time they were looking outside the tube. So if I understand you correctly, Kathy, people who were experimenting
0: with cathode rays were actually generating x-rays, but they just didn't understand
1: that. There were lots of x-rays being made, they just didn't know it because they were looking inside the tube. Can you tell us what happened when a German physicist turned his attention to what was happening outside the tube? It was November 8th, 1895. Röntgen had a small lab, and he had sent everyone home because it was late. And he just wanted to do one more experiment. He wanted to do another experiment with these tubes. So it was covered in thick cardboard, but it had an aluminum window. He knew that this aluminum window would let these things called cathode rays through the window. And he was going to study it on the other side.
0: So there Wilhelm Röntgen is, working in his lab late one afternoon. He's just going to conduct a quick experiment before dinner. He knew about Leonard's observations with a cathode ray tube and was curious to see if he could recreate his colleague's results. Perhaps there was something worthy of further exploration. He set up the experiment with a high vacuum Crookes tube, which was similar to the Leonard tube, but was made of thicker glass. The tube had the aluminum window and the entire contraption was covered in opaque cardboard. The idea was that covering the glass tube in cardboard would block out visible light, but not the glow from the cathode rays. Then Röntgen switched on the electrical current to generate the cathode rays. And here, things started to get interesting. Just as Leonard had observed, a glow penetrated the cardboard and hovered just outside the tube. But what was that out of the corner of his eye? There, way over on the other end of the lab bench, a fluorescent screen shimmered. This was baffling. Where was that light coming from? Ronchin turned off the electrical current to make sure the lab was completely dark with no light coming in from any other source. He checked again that his tube was light tight. Then he switched the electrical current back on and sure enough, the shimmery glow on the screen on the other side of the bench reappeared.
1: Could this strange light be caused by some new type of ray? But he was very shocked because the cardboard he put on the outside he knew would block ultraviolet light, visible light, but still something was getting through. And he said he was instantly aware that this must be a new kind of light and a new kind of ray. So he called it an X-ray, to be X as in unknown, a new kind of ray to distinguish it from the other kinds of rays. And then he went home to dinner, and supposedly he, like, ate without even basically talking to his wife, and hurried back to the lab to do more experiments. He didn't tell his assistants. He said to his wife something like, he's doing something that will make people say, Röntgen has surely gone crazy. Allow me to interject here, Kathy. But his lab was only one
0: flight down from his family's living quarters. So Ronchin didn't have to go far. And that's a good thing, because for the next several weeks, he ate and slept in that lab, continuing to experiment. He'd seen that the x-ray was powerful enough to penetrate cardboard. But what else could it penetrate? He placed successively thicker objects between the cathode ray tube
1: and the fluorescent screen. So at night, in secret, in the dark, Röntgen starts experimenting with this new X-ray. He wants to see exactly how powerful it is. And he actually just picks up random things, a book, a piece of paper, a pack of cards, a pine wood, all sorts of things. And one of the things he picks up and puts between the X-ray machine and his phosphorescent screen is a small lead disc. And as he's waiting for the shadow of the lead disc to appear on the screen, and mind you, this was a very ineffective x-ray machine, so it took 10 or 15 minutes for the image to appear on the screen. He's holding up this disc, and he sees the shadow not only of the disc, but he starts to see the shadow of his own bones. Hold on, hold on, what? Was he actually seeing his own skeleton? He's so dry in his paper, he just says something like he sees the shadow, you can see the shadow of your bones. But he must have been astonished beyond belief. It seemed like science fiction. And he was quite worried that people would think he was crazy and unbelievable. But he was also an amateur photographer. So he thought, well, let's see if this will make an image on a photographic plate. And it luckily did, and so he just started photographing everything that he experimented on. And almost all of his photographs are incredibly dull. It's unbelievable to me. He had this new thing, and he's like, let's take an x-ray of a wooden box with a piece of metal in it. Like, really? That's exciting to you? Fortunately, Rontgen had the sense to know
0: that an image of a human skeleton would make for pretty compelling evidence. Since it was difficult to take an image of his own hand while at the same time positioning the cathode tube, he was going to need the help of his wife, Bertha. I think Bertha deserves a special shout-out here. She had been dutifully bringing hot dinners to Ronchin in his lab for weeks and weeks, offering him support and sustenance without a clue about what he was working on. Then, on December twenty-second, 1895, Ronchen asked her to come and help him in his lab, she obliged, doing as her husband directed and placing her hand on the photographic plate and holding it steady for several minutes. The developed plate clearly revealed each bone of her hand, along with a shadow of her wedding ring. We don't know if Ronchen had prepared her in advance, but you can imagine that seeing this image was unexpected. Bertha is reported to have shrieked. I have seen my death before running upstairs and taking to her bed. Some say that she never again entered Raunchen's lab, though personally, I like to believe that she was made of sterner stuff. But either way, that photograph of the x-ray showing the bones of Bertha's hand and the shadow of her wedding ring is iconic. You can see it in the show notes, on the Game Changes in Medicine website. Ronchin knew he was onto something important and felt an urgency to publish the discovery quickly.
1: Kathy picks up the story. There's another instance of serendipity in this story because he published in December 28th of 1895, an article on a new kind of rays. But of course, at this time, it was very difficult to add pictures and he didn't add any pictures. And this was also a few days after Christmas Nobody paid much attention to this. So almost desperate, he sent out a bunch of copies, like 60 copies to different famous people throughout the world. And 12 of them had photographs or copies of the photographs. And one of the copies with photographs, he sent to a a former student. And this former student on January 4th, 1896, was having dinner with a friend and over cigars, he mentioned this crazy thing that he got from his former boss. And the friend was a physicist and also the son of the owner of the most popular newspaper in Vienna. So he just basically asked for a copy of it and ran to his father, interrupted him after dinner, and had him run to the press and change the front page of the newspaper to add an article about this. They even misspelled Röntgen's name because they didn't know Röntgen at all. But they were so excited about this. And they kept on saying, they didn't have enough time to include photographs, but they did have enough time to say, this isn't humbug. This is real German science from a real German scientist. And once it was published in that paper, it got transferred to the London Times. And then soon it was everywhere. Everyone was talking about it.
0: From there, the world went crazy over what came to be known as Ronschen's Rays. Hucksters made their own primitive x-ray machines and set up photography studios. People stood in line to get portraits of their bones. X-rays were touted as a cure for everything from acne to excess facial hair and headaches. Enterprising entrepreneurs sold x-ray-proof underwear to women who were alarmed by this new see-through technology. Mainstream retailers also got on board offering x-rays as a novel way to custom-size hats and shoes. Even today, American men and women of a certain age may remember childhood visits to the shoe store and the x-ray fluoroscopes retailers then used to measure customers' feet. On the medical front, doctors were quick to embrace x-rays as a diagnostic tool. X-rays even went to the battlefield to help doctors find bullets and broken bones
1: in soldiers fighting in the Balkan War in 1897. I think it's impossible to realize now how insanely popular x-rays were at the time. They didn't have any idea how dangerous it was at first, but they knew it was exciting, new, and scientific, and could look inside you. Thomas Edison was one of the earliest people to get involved in x-rays once Röntgen discovered it. He had giant factories full of like hundreds of people working on different scientific discoveries. When he heard about x-rays, he immediately went to working on it. He made this screen that was way more powerful by trial and error, which was his usual method of doing things. They just took every material they could, found out which glowed better in x-rays. And he also improved the x-ray machine But he didn't patent it, which was unusual for him because he usually patented everything. Everyone was developing stuff with the x-rays and it just seemed impossible to him to patent it. But he was starting to have a few medical issues from using the x-ray. And his assistant, Clarence Daly, had major medical issues. So even
0: amidst the wild enthusiasm over what x-rays could do, there began to be an undercurrent of concern. What happened to Daly, Edison's assistant, was particularly alarming, not to mention tragic. Daly suffered severe radiation damage from his ongoing experiments with x rays. What began as skin lesions and ulcers on his wrists and hands ultimately resulted in amputation of his left hand and four fingers on his right. When this failed to stop the progression of the cancer, his arms were amputated at the elbow and shoulder. Despite these aggressive measures, Daly died from the cancer thought to be a direct result of his prolonged exposure to x-rays. As a result, Edison abandoned his research and warned people away from x-rays. Don't talk to me about x-rays, he said.
1: I'm afraid of them. No one had any idea about safety procedures. And in fact, this is a slightly different subject. Most of the people who ended up doing x-rays were women because there was no license to do x-rays. You just got the equipment and you did x-rays and then you got paid for it. And everyone was figuring it out as they did it. So it was really hard to get in medical school as a woman, but you could do x-rays And you could be an x-ray technician and you could go into any town and everyone would be happy to get their x-ray done because they want to see what their hand looked like or their foot looked like or whatever. And then, of course, once they started to get ill, nobody paid any attention to them because they're just women complaining about women's issues, like their hair falling out and then getting cancer. But Edison's employee, he was a man. And so there was more listening to him when he described how he got ill. And Edison was, like I said, one of the first people to get into x-rays and also one of the first people to get out of x-rays. He became terrified of it. He's like, I'm not touching this. Let's do something else. This is not a safe way to deal with. Edison was right. X-rays were not safe. Too much exposure
0: can cause cancer which is why dentists cover you with that x-ray-blocking lead blanket before taking x-rays off your mouth. Happily though, by the 1940s, protective and oversight measures began to be put in place that minimized risk for both doctors and their patients. And thank goodness, can you imagine the practice of medicine today without x-rays? We asked radiologist Daniel Margolis to share just how important x-rays are to his clinical practice. Dr. Margolis is Associate Professor of Radiology for Weill Cornell Medical College and the head of the department's Prostate MRI Program.
2: So x-rays are an important part of basically every radiologist's practice, although each of us use x-rays to varying degrees. My practice focuses on diseases of the abdomen and pelvis and CAT scans are probably the most common way that we make these diagnoses because CAT scans are extremely fast. And although the X-ray radiation has a small amount of risk, that risk is uh, very minute Um, similar to the risk that you would accumulate in about a year of just living at sea level.
0: A CAT scan, or CT scan, is a series of X-ray images taken from all different angles of the patient's body. With the help of computer processing, those images are combined to create a cross-sectional picture of the bones, blood vessels, and soft tissues. This gives doctors a more detailed picture of the inside of the body, and a standard x-ray.
2: CAT scans are an important part of how we diagnose everything from appendicitis to cancer to surgical complications uh, and surgical planning. But even regular x-rays, radiographs, are important to figure out if a patient has kidney stones or a bowel obstruction. And so those are also an important part of what we do. And then about once a week, I use fluoroscopy, which is real-time x-ray, primarily to look at the swallowing mechanism and the digestive tract. And this gives me a functional evaluation as opposed to simply an anatomic characterization. So I can see if food is going down at the appropriate rate, if it's getting stuck, if a patient has reflux, and... This is a a crucial part of my practice, but I also use a number of other technologies. Our field grew out of pathology. Pathology was the first field to incorporate x-ray technology, and x-rays became so crucial to diagnosis that they grew into their own specialty, and out of that, we have MRI and ultrasound, but also therapeutic radiation that we use in radiation oncology. However, All of these technologies, whether it's tomosynthesis or CT scan or MRI or ultrasound, are all improving at such a rapid pace that each one seems to leapfrog the others. And that's one of the main jobs of the radiologist is to keep abreast of all of the new technologies and act as a resource and a consultant to other physicians who need to know which test is the best one to answer a specific question. That's one of the benefits of working at Cornell and New York Presbyterian is we have one of the most dynamic and progressive departments in the country. And it's only by understanding the value that these new technologies can provide and figuring out how to implement them in a way that's safe and effective that we can transform healthcare for our patients. So I'm very lucky to be
0: where I am. Thank you so much, Dr. Margolis. It's incredible to consider how a discovery made 125 years ago continues to have such impact on patient care today. Listeners will be pleased to know that in 1901, Rontgen was awarded the first Nobel Prize for physics, not for medicine, interesting enough. The award was, and I quote, in recognition of the extraordinary services he had rendered by the discovery of the remarkable rays subsequently named after him. Rontgen donated the Nobel Prize money to his university, the University of Würzburg, and never sought to patent or profit from x-rays in any way. In fact, despite the accolades that rained down on him, the roads named after him, the honorary doctorates conferred, Rontgen remained private and humble. He gave very few lectures. He didn't even speak at the Nobel Prize Awards ceremony. But he did attend it. And when he was asked what his thoughts were at the moment of his discovery, he was quick to reply, I didn't think. I investigated. And the practice of medicine has never been the same since. We hope you have enjoyed this latest episode of Game Changes in Medicine. As always, we welcome your feedback and comments on GameChangersInMedicine.com. Game Changers in Medicine is a Dramatic Health production. Sean Maloney is the executive producer. Rolando Nieves is our showrunner and editor. Sharon Johnson is our researcher and writer. Lauren Wiegand and Tom Slavikowski are producers. Ryan Liatsis is our audio engineer.
2: dramatic health production.